Hello, and welcome back to The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. I'm your host, as always, Hussein Hadri, uh, and I am really excited to bring you this show this month, and I know I always say that, but this show in particular, I think, addresses a topic that a lot of us have heard about, a lot of us have considered, but we haven't really grappled with it in a complete way. And so I'm going to start by talking about, I'm going to lay the groundwork for our issue. We're going to have an interview, and then I'm going to share some final thoughts. Our topic today is waiver into the adult system. Now, this is a complicated issue, right? We're talking about when a child is tried as an adult and then sentenced as an adult. And this is an emotionally fraught situation. It's also kind of controversial. A lot of folks have uh, very strong opinions one way or the other about whether this should be allowed and what situations. Now, we're going to be talking to Joshua Peace, who is who works at the State Appellate Defender's Office, and he is the Youth Defense Project Director. He is a very highly qualified attorney and has a lot of knowledge in this area. He was also on the ju- on the Governor's Juvenile Justice Task Force. Uh, in particular, he was on the work group that talked about Uh, waivers uh, into the adult system. Now, our conversation was pretty wide-ranging, and I want to lay some of the groundwork so that you can follow along. We use some terms that uh, you may not be familiar with, and it's worth just talking about what, uh, what we're talking about. Number one, waiver. This term waiver, we've used it before on the show, but not specifically in this context. Uh, we talked about waiver of counsel before, which is when a child uh, or a youth might say that they don't want counsel. We talked about how that can be a problem, what situations it might, where it might arise. This episode is about waiver into the adult system. So every time we talk about waiver in this episode, that's what we're talking about is a youth who is tried under the juvenile or under the adult justice system. Now, the context of this conversation is raise the age. You'll remember that those are the bills that made the age of automatically considering a youth an adult for the purposes of the justice system uh, 18 years old. So it used to be that at 17, a kid would be charged as an adult automatically, and after raise the age, that age was 18. And we talked about how that made a big difference in the juvenile justice system. It does every day in in Michigan. So that's the context of this conversation. Someone under the age of 18 who would usually be in the juvenile justice system is now being charged as an adult. Uh, And we talk about the reasons for that, the the procedure for that. The next term I just want to define really quickly is jurisdiction. Now the context of jurisdiction is Uh, A little bit complicated, but I'm going to do my best to simplify it. Jurisdiction has a couple of elements, geographical elements, but here we're talking about who is subject to the court's decision-making power. The question is whether the court has the ability and the authority to render legally binding decisions on someone. And so the United States Supreme Court has a certain scope for its jurisdiction, Uh, The Michigan Supreme Court has a certain scope for its jurisdiction that's a little bit different. Uh, And then juvenile courts have a very specific kind of jurisdiction relating to youth. Now, for an adult court to obtain jurisdiction over youth, the juvenile court has to waive its jurisdiction. Okay, so that's what we're talking about when we say that a youth is then charged as an adult. 
The last thing I want to mention is the role of what's in the best interest of the child. Now, this is a concept that I think all of our listeners are familiar with, and it's the basis of a lot of this conversation, right? We want youth in the juvenile justice system, through the juvenile justice system, to come back into society and continue their lives as law-abiding citizens who find a job, buy a house, whatever it is that they're interested in. And the juvenile justice system is meant to rehabilitate them in that sense. The role of what's in the best interest of the youth can sometimes be trumped by what's in the best interest of society. In very limited circumstances, the court might decide that a child should be a child's best interests are subject to the best interests of the community that the community might be safer or better off if this youth was charged as an adult now you can notice just from the way that i'm framing that that this is a really really somber inquiry right we should take this very seriously and we should really prioritize what's most important in this process because what we're doing is we're saying that this child doesn't deserve to be treated like a child and that what's best for them is not as important as what's best for the community. This is something that we should take very seriously. And so with that, I'm going to introduce my conversation with Josh Peace. He is at the State Appellate Defender's Office. He is the Youth Defense Project Director and he is very good at his job. He's very knowledgeable, and he has a lot of experience working with uh, with youth, and especially in the legal context. And I really enjoyed my conversation with him. I'm sure you will too. And with all that being said, enjoy today's show. My conversation today is with Joshua Peace. He is the Youth Defense Project Director at the State Appellate Defender's Office. Now, we've talked about Sato before on the show, but Josh, can you give us a brief overview of what y'all do? Sure. Uh, the State Appellate Defender Office handles felony criminal appeals throughout the state, and we're broken down into a few different parts. There is Sato itself, which is does direct appeals, um, you know, getting appointed directly to represent about, it, it works out to about, 25% or so of felony appeals. We have the juvenile lifer unit, which is focused on cases where, where kids who committed crimes received a sentence of life without parole. And they're working in light of changes in the law over the last decade or so to, to change those sentences and get those, those people released. We have the Criminal Defense Resource Center, which focuses on trainings and written materials for attorneys and then finally, we have the Michigan Appellate Assigned Counsel System, which is uh, manages a roster of private practice attorneys throughout the state who handle that other 75% or so of felony appeals. And I work in the MAX wing of SATO, where we're focused on expanding youth defense, specifically youth appellate defense, and bringing that into the fold at SATO. So it's my understanding that there have been some changes in a, in a budgetary sense at Sato. The governor has pushed for an expansion of um, funding for juvenile type work. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? 
Absolutely. So the House and Senate appropriation bills based on the governor's budget do include funding to add a couple new positions at Sato focused on youth defense. That would include potentially bringing in a direct appeals attorney dedicated to youth defense. Those appropriations bills are still pending. We're hoping they'll be passed in the near future. However, Sato's mandate doesn't currently include youth defense, and we would need other legislation to amend the Appellate Defender Act, which lays out the responsibilities of Sato. We anticipate that that legislation will come as part of the package of expected bills stemming from the recommendation of the governor's task force on juvenile justice reform. But as of the time of us recording here, those bills haven't been introduced yet. We're also hopeful that the appropriations will provide funding to increase the work we do in the juvenile lifer unit. And there were some big changes there last year, and we're hoping to expand that unit to work on the cases that now fall under what the Supreme Court has said are unconstitutional life sentences of life without parole. Yeah, at MCOJ, we're big supporters of your work, and we really hope that all those proposals go through. I want to take a second here and kind of distinguish between the appellate side, which is what you work on, and the initial juvenile defense. We talked about juvenile public defense in our second episode of the show. Can you talk about how appellate work is different from that? What are the different types of issues that you deal with? You know, talk about some of the different challenges that you might face. Sure. Appellate work is looking at what happened at the trial level and trying to determine whether there were any mistakes made, whether that the judge made a procedural error that they shouldn't have made. Maybe the defense attorney provided ineffective assistance of counsel. Maybe there were jury instructions that should have been given that weren't. Maybe it's just reviewing the sentence of an adult to say, hey, this sentence was disproportionate and shouldn't have been entered. So we review what happened, determine what those issues are, and ask the Court of Appeals to look at them and figure out what mistakes were made and how do we fix them. In terms of juvenile defense, there's a broad range of areas for which youth have a claim of appeal, meaning they have a right to ask the court to review whatever issue they bring, whether that's being removed from their home and placed in detention, whether that's the initial disposition order, whether that's an order of the trial court waiving jurisdiction, sending it from juvenile court to adult court. There's a lot fewer youth defense appeals than there are adult appeals. There's somewhere in the thousands of adult cases per year, but there are usually fewer than 20 delinquency or waiver appeals per year. The most common is these waiver appeals where the court decided, the juvenile court decided that it's in the best interest of the youth and the public for the case to be heard in adult court, and the youth is waiving that decision. We see a fair number of those. Any other types of cases, whether it's removal from the home or appealing the order of disposition, those are pretty rare. Yeah, we're going to get into waiver decisions later in the show. I wanted to pick up on one of the things that you mentioned. On the adult side, one of the issues that can be appealed is when an adult defendant isn't told of rights and is then sentenced for and found guilty. 
uh, that say on Sato's website, you'll say that that there is currently no requirement that youth uh, be given the same information of their rights. Can you talk about why that is? I feel like a lot of people, at least myself, would be really surprised to hear that. What's the what's the difference there, and is that something that Sato's advocating uh, to change? So I'll say that I was surprised myself when I realized that in juvenile court, the judge or the referee isn't required to advise the youth of their appellate rights, uh, whether that's removing them from the home or a dispositional order. They are required to advise them of their appellate rights after a waiver decision, but otherwise there's no requirement there. And that one caught me off guard. I talked with a lot of other practitioners throughout the state. They also didn't realize that wasn't a requirement. Um, I can't really tell you why that's not part of the court rules. As far as I can tell, it's never been part of the court rules. My best guess without going through the entire history of the Michigan court rules, which current version dates back to 1985. Um, my best guess is it was an oversight, but I don't know for sure. I can tell you that there is currently a proposal with the Michigan Supreme Court to add the advice of appellate rights to the court rules. Our office worked on that proposal. We got support from the State Bar of Michigan, the Michigan Judges Association, and the University of Michigan Juvenile Justice Clinic, among others. We're hopeful the court will adopt that proposal and require that advice of appellate rights. Um, but right now, it's still just sit, uh, with the Supreme Court. Fair enough. Yeah, I think uh, you know what's really challenging about that for me is. Uh, looking at where Michigan is relative to other states, we talked about uh, on again the second episode of our of the season that Michigan is one of the worst states to be a kid in uh, in juvenile court because we, I think we rank 49th out of 50 in terms of access to counsel and in situations like that, getting appellate counsel has to be even more difficult. Being aware fully of your rights or of any defenses that might be available to you, it's not very easy. Um, but let's talk about waiver. Let's jump into that a little bit. So throughout the show, we've talked about basically every level of the juvenile justice process from, you know, talking to a police officer to then being arrested or and then being brought in front of a judge. How does uh, waiver happen? How does that, what does the prosecutor need to do? What does the judge need to do? Um, is there anything that the youth can do in the process to, to advocate for themselves? How does that all work? All right. So when we talk about waiver, it's, that's kind of a general term that means trying a youth as an adult. In Michigan, if you are younger than 18 and you're charged with a crime, presumptively you are charged in juvenile court as a youth. However, Michigan has set up three different ways that youth can be tried as an adult. The one I understand to be most common is what we call traditional waiver. The prosecutor files their petition in juvenile court and then they file a motion asking the court to waive jurisdiction, meaning the juvenile court give up its jurisdiction over the child and send jurisdiction to criminal division of circuit court. And from there, the court has to hold a couple hearings. The first hearing, what we call the phase one hearing, is to determine whether there's probable cause to believe that the youth committed a felony offense. Probable cause is essentially, is there enough evidence here to believe that this A, a crime occurred and B, the youth committed the crime. It's a much lower standard than um, beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the standard at trial. So is there probable cause to believe the youth committed a felony offense? 
And then the phase two hearing is what we call the best interest hearing. The prosecutor has the burden at this hearing to prove that it is in the best interest of the youth and the public for the court to waive jurisdiction. The court has to look at several factors, which I'm gonna circle back to later because they pop up again. Uh, and once the court has waived jurisdiction, the case is sent to criminal court where it's treated exactly the same as other criminal cases. And traditional waiver can only be used for felony offenses, but otherwise there's not a lot of limitation on it. The second type of waiver is what we call automatic waiver, which I've also heard called direct file. Here, the prosecutor skips juvenile court altogether and they file a complaint in district court, which is the same way that a criminal case against adults is initiated. The case moves through the system the same as an adult criminal case up until you get to the point of sentencing. At sentencing an automatic waiver, there is a presumption for the youth to be sentenced as an adult unless the court can find by a preponderance of the evidence that it's in the best interest of the public to place the youth on juvenile probation and commit them to state wardship. In making that decision, the same six factors from traditional waiver apply here. Automatic waiver is only available for what's what are called specified juvenile violations. That usually means some ex the most extremely serious offenses such as murder, first degree criminal sexual conduct, armed robbery, things along those lines. So the shooting in Oxford, for example, that would have fallen into that situation would have fallen into the second waiver, the automatic waiver you're talking about. That would have fallen into either traditional waiver or automatic waiver. It was uh, those the offenses with which that young man was charged were specified juvenile violations. Therefore, they were sufficient for the prosecutor to file a complaint in uh, in district court um, to treat it as an automatic waiver case. Alternatively, the prosecutor could have started it as a traditional waiver case, filed a petition in juvenile court, and from there go through the traditional waiver phase one, phase two hearings asking for jurisdiction to be waived. So if it's a specified juvenile violation, there are multiple avenues of waiver. But if it's a lower level felony, let's say unlawfully driving away an automobile, uh, which is you know not a not a violent crime, not not high up on the list of serious crimes, automatic waiver wouldn't be available for a, a crime like that. Yeah, and I'll remind our listeners we talked about these specified violations in episode five. Uh, as they relate to diversion, right? We talked about the exceptions to the proposal um, from the governor's task force on juvenile justice. They're the same violations uh, in this case. Uh, you mentioned the, I didn't want to cut you off. You were talking about automatic, you're, you were still going and I cut you off when I asked about Oxford. Do you have anything you wanted to add on that? Uh, so there's one more way that youth can be tried as adults. This one's not called waiver. It's called designation. Designated cases stay in juvenile court even if the youth is tried as an adult. So the prosecutor files their petition in juvenile court. If the charge is a specified juvenile violation, the prosecutor can designate that the youth be tried as an adult and the court can't stop them from designating if it's a specified juvenile violation. Alternatively, they can report a different type of felony, a lower level felony, they can request that the court designate the youth be tried as an adult. 
And the procedure there is uh, what's called a designation hearing, which is basically the same as the best interest hearing in traditional waiver. The court has to determine whether it's in the best interest of the youth and the public to be tried as an adult in juvenile court and make the decisions on the same six factors. The, all three of them have different sentencing options. So for traditional waiver, if they are convicted, they must be sentenced as an adult. There is no discretion there. With automatic waiver, like I said, the presumption is that they'll be sentenced by it uh, as an adult, unless the court finds that it's in the best interest of the public that they be sentenced essentially as a youth, juvenile probation, commit them to state wardship. With designation, it's a little different. The court has broader options. The presumption is for what's called a juvenile disposition, which is the same as the juvenile, uh, as a youth would get if they are tried as a youth. The, however, if the court finds that it's in the best interest of the public, the court can do an adult sentence as well. Uh, so I mentioned factors. There's these six factors that, uh, that the court has to consider in all three of those types of cases. And without going into all the detail on all six factors, they are the seriousness of the alleged offense in terms of community protection, the culpability of the youth in committing the alleged offense, the youth's prior record of delinquency, the youth's programming history, the adequacy of the punishment or programming available in the juvenile justice system, and the dispositional options available for the youth. The court is required in all cases to give greater weight to the seriousness of the offense and the youth's prior record of delinquency, although the court must consider all six factors. For traditional waiver, there's one additional consideration in a case called People v. Dunbar. The Michigan Supreme Court said that there must be evidence on the record to which the court must refer regarding the relative suitability of services in both the juvenile and adult correctional facilities. So there's this um, comparison of what's available in juvenile court, what's available in adult court that must be considered, but only for traditional waiver. Sorry, what are, what types of services is that referring to? Is that like rehabilitative services, counseling, that kind of stuff, or is there something else? Yeah, I mean, juvenile court is focused on rehabilitation. It's not about punishment. It's about rehabilitating the youth, finding what services are necessary to help them grow and to help them become a, a, a law-abiding, functioning adult so that they're not the type of person who's going to end up in prison uh, going forward. Um, the, the adult system is much more carceral, focused on punishment, and is less likely to have rehabilitative services. In particular, the adult system is less likely to have rehabilitative services focused on youth and focused on their unique psychological and developmental characteristics. As we know, youth are different than adults. There's the research on that is basically indisputable at this point and has been integrated into court decisions for nearly 20 years. Uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions like Roper and Graham and Miller and JDB, where the court said, yeah, youth are different. And it's not just that their psychology is different, it's that they are constitutionally different from adults. 
And the Michigan Supreme Court has integrated that over the last couple of years in cases like Boykin and Parks and Poole and Stovall and Taylor. Now these focused on sentencing youth, but there was this broad recognition of youth are different. We need to treat them different. And there, uh, the, there's this recommendation within the governor's task force to amend all six of these factors, maybe not all six, but to amend these factors to bring them more in line with this research about the development of youth. The factors were last amended in the late 90s, which was at the height of this super predator craze where there was this push toward making the youth, uh, the juvenile justice system more punishment focused, more carceral, and this push toward criminalizing youth. We've learned a lot during, uh, since then about how youth are different, and we've seen a lot of that in Supreme Court decisions, both at the federal and state level. So some of the suggestions we see from the task force are, are adding a factor about the emotional and mental health and maturity of the youth. That would be brand new, very different from anything that currently exists in the factors, and really does recognize how youth are mentally and emotionally less mature than adults. They're less capable of comprehending and appreciating the consequences of their actions. They're more likely to act impulsively. Adding that factor does more to take into consideration who you are as a person, not just the actions you have engaged in. There are recommendations to uh, add cultural considerations to be taken into consideration. Um, my understanding is when the bills eventually come out, that likely will be focused on um, cultural considerations for youth who are tribal, uh, but I don't know for sure if it, that will be the limitation. There's focus on removing non-criminal acts and considerations from the prior record of delinquency. Right now, prior record of delinquency includes things that are not criminal acts. It includes the youth's educational record, which essentially can make it more likely that a youth gets tried as an adult because they're a bad student. By taking that away, again, you're focusing, uh, you're, you're moving away from who you're just assumed to be a bad child and focusing more on who are you truly as a child, who are you as a person, and to what extent is that impacting your actions instead of just focusing on the actions themselves. Now, of course, like the Appellate Defender Act, no bills have been introduced at the time of recording, so I can't say with certainty what recommendations will actually be in uh, any bills that come out. And we'll be sure to update the listeners once there uh, is, a, is a bill that's out. I did want to ask about the recommendations. There's one um, recommendation or one of the factors that's uh, proposed for uh, consideration in those bills is impact on the victim. And it really, you know, we've talked about restorative justice a little bit on the show, and it really does, you know, push the justice system in that direction in terms of, you know, including the impact on the victim. Maybe the victim has the opportunity to talk about how they would like the issue to be resolved. Is that the direction you think that the juvenile justice system should be moving in as a, as a whole? Well, I'll tell you, impact on the victim is already one of the factors. It falls, currently falls under seriousness of the alleged effects. 
um, what they would be doing with that recommendation is taking impact on the victim, pulling it out of seriousness of the offense and making it its own individual factor. Um, if anything, given that the, the statute and the court rules require that the court give greater weight to the seriousness of the offense, moving it away has the potential to uh, maybe not require, but could potentially lead to courts placing less emphasis and less weight on impact on the victim. Of course, focus on restorative justice has is is a very important consideration and impact on the victim to the extent that it's part of restorative justice will continue to be a valid consideration. But this is less adding something new and more just a reshuffling of factors. Right, because otherwise it is really up to kind of leaving it as part of that one seriousness of the offense factor does allow it to sometimes get lost. Is that what you're saying? I think to an extent it can get lost in there, but also to an extent by having it as part of seriousness of the offense, it can uh, it can dwell over other factors and it can make it so the court is more likely to weigh based on impact on the victim, even if other factors might weigh against that. So I think that there's some positives and some negatives to moving it the way they did. Fair enough. Yeah. Last season, we talked about Jones versus Mississippi, the Supreme Court case about juvenile life without parole. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned Miller uh, earlier, uh, one of the uh, elements of that of that decision, and a lot of the folks that supported that decision talked about how it was meant to uh, reduce some of the burden on the on the on the system, where instead of having to go through this, you know, extensive process of having a Miller hearing and all this fact finding, we could shorten the process, make it quicker, make it easier to keep the justice system rolling. That's a sim similarly folks have made, um, you know, made that argument with regard to these factors and, you know, making the waiver process longer. Uh, how do you address that concern that folks have about logistics, time, money, making the, you know, prolonging the process rather than moving it quickly? Well, l let me start by saying it's my position that rights should never be based on logistics. We shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be looking at these cases and, well, we're going to treat youth as adults because it's cheaper, it's quicker, it's more logistical, we don't have the resources. I don't think that's a great reason, but I also don't think it's great to say, well, we're going to say that it's unconstitutional to that life without parole is unconstitutional because of logistics. I don't like the idea of logistics. I've actually talked with Justice McCormack about this several years ago on a child welfare case where, you know, there was a concern that this, uh, the opinion that came out, the case of People v. Sanders, was going to create a lot more work in the child welfare system. And her response, which I love and has never left me, is Constitution doesn't care about that. Uh, and that's my position is Constitution doesn't care about these logistics, uh, these logistical concerns. Constitution and, and individual rights shouldn't be based on what's more convenient. Now, that being said, resource availability is a real concern in the juvenile justice system. There, in, you talk to anyone who works in the system and you'll hear that right now, especially in terms of mental health services, there is a dearth of available services. Um, 
and I worked on a traditional waiver case once where one of the court's primary concerns was the long waiting period for getting the youth into appropriate rehabilitative programming. And that was a significant part of the court's rationale in waiving jurisdiction. So unfortunately, we are seeing youth tried as adults, at least in part, because the juvenile court facilities are full or they don't have resources available to them. I believe that's a disservice to youth. I believe it leads to the risk of prioritizing resource availability over amenability to treatment. Even if there's evidence that the youth would benefit from services, the court, to an extent, can look past that based on how quickly the youth can get into those services. If it's going to be a long delay getting into services, right now the courts, again, at least to an extent, are weighing that in favor of waiver. So how we reconcile those concerns is a really tough question. How do we reconcile making sure youth get the appropriate services with there's going to be a long way to get those services? Easy answer is more money for the services, but there's only so much money to go around. And we can't ask for the, for the state to give us an infinite amount of money to address everything. So absent a significant increase in financial resources, we are going to be left with these situations and the question of what is better for youth, staying in juvenile court and waiting a long time for services or being tried as an adult and facing a prison sentence. I fall squarely on the side of keeping kids in juvenile court. To me, even a delay in rehabilitative services is more beneficial than risking years, even decades in prison. There's a plethora of research showing that the vast majority of youth simply grow out of their delinquent behavior, even when they've committed serious offenses. Pushing them into the adult system doesn't account for the fact that kids usually grow into responsible adults, regardless of how irresponsible they are as kids. That delay in services is worth keeping them in juvenile court if it means giving them the chance to grow up in the community rather than grow up in prison. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. The The idea that um, constitutional rights and the implementation of those constitutional rights should be subject to logistical concerns. I mean, we know that most of these rights are do frustrate logistical, uh, you know, logistical priorities. I wanted to ask, I, I ask this to everyone that comes on the show, um, simply because for actually for a couple of reasons, and being a lawyer in particular, I think that's an added reason for asking this. Uh, one, there aren't a lot of people that choose juvenile justice or working with youth um, compared to other fields. It doesn't it doesn't pay as well. Um, and oftentimes, and this is something that affected me, it's very, very emotionally fraught work, right? You see some of the worst stories, you meet some you meet people on some of the worst days of their lives, probably the worst day of their life. Uh, if you know, if you were given the, and we have a lot of folks that listen to our show that are still deciding which direction they want their career to go in. Um, if you were talking to a young person that was considering working in juvenile law or was work, considering working in juvenile justice or any other, you know, uh, youth related field, uh, what's the argument you would make? Would you say, would you tell them to, would you encourage them to work in uh, juvenile law or would you tell them find another field? So, that's tough. That's tough for me in part because I didn't seek this out. I accidentally fell into juvenile law. Uh, I wanted to be a criminal attorney. That was my goal for years and years and years. Or I wanted to go into civil rights. I wanted to work for the ACLU, making uh, making a difference in that way. And I had never even considered juvenile law. 
and just kind of accidentally fell into it. But what I can say is, um, you know, if your priority is making lots of money, no, this is not the field for you. That, that's just, that's, there's no way around that. If your priority is helping people, helping families, helping children, doing public service, this is one of the best areas to go into. Having direct impact on individual lives every day, working with kids, working with particularly vulnerable kids who more often than not have been abused or neglected at some point in their lives, who have been over-policed at some points in their lives, who have had their own issues essentially disregarded, working directly with them, getting to know them, and seeing the difference you can make in their lives is rewarding in a way that nothing else could be. I've done a lot of different things in my career. I've done criminal law, I've done family law, I've done juvenile law, uh, some probate stuff. Uh, no, nothing, nothing has come close to the emotional reward that I get out of representing kids. Nothing has, is even close. I think there's also a, a lot of room for for growth in this area. And I don't just mean, you know, your personal growth. I mean growth in the field. Um, you know, I, I mentioned there's not a lot of appeals in delinquency cases. If you're the type of person who wants to go out there and make new law, this is the perfect area for it. And we haven't had many published opinions in delinquency cases ever let alone in, you know, across the broad spectrum of things. I was talking recently with Chief Judge Gleischer of the Court of Appeals, and she indicated to me that it appears that there's never been a published opinion saying that youth have the right to the effective assistance of counsel. That's a great area for litigation. Uh, someone coming in and saying, I want to change the law. Youth defense is a great place to do it because they're there's so little established law compared to, say, criminal law. If, you, if that's what you're looking for, please come my direction. Josh Peace is the Youth Defense Project Director at SATO. Josh, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm sure our listeners did as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate having me on today. After the short break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to close out the show by mentioning by name all of the factors that MCYJ and the Juvenile Justice Task Force are proposing uh, become part of a mandatory consideration process uh, when considering traditional waivers into uh, adult court. The task force says that the following factors should be considered. One, the seriousness one, the seriousness of the offense and aggravating factors, the youth's uh, culpability, the youth's risk to public safety. Two, the youth's prior delinquency history, including only the youth's prior record of acts that would be considered crimes if they were committed by adults. Now, Josh mentioned this in the interview. I want to mention specifically that this would exclude any status offenses. I think that's a big deal because something that wouldn't be a crime for an adult should not 
make it more likely that a child is charged as an adult. I think that only makes sense. Um, and, you know, specifically, we talked about status offenses before, but specifically that's like, you know, absence from school, underage drinking, stuff like that. Number three, the emotional and mental health and maturity of the youth. This, as Josh mentioned, is new. Number four, uh, the amenability of the youth to treatment and rehabilitation in the juvenile justice system. Number five, cultural considerations. Number six, prior treatment efforts and out-of-home placements. And number seven, impact on the victim. Now, number seven, as Josh mentioned, uh, used to be considered uh, under the seriousness of the offense. And effectively, the Juvenile Justice Task Force is trying to disaggregate that inquiry is trying to make that a separate issue so that the court separately has to make has to make uh, fact finding on that issue has to consider how victims were affected and I think that the totality of these factors when considered in context of one another in context of the community and all other things uh, hopefully that'll make it more uh, more likely that youth actually get justice when they go through the youth legal system it's often the case that a child might be waived into the adult system for logistical concerns, as Josh mentioned, um, the fact that resources aren't available. This will hopefully put pressure on folks that are responsible for providing appropriate resources to find them where they're needed, because justice shouldn't really take a backseat to logistics. It shouldn't really take a backseat to budgets and other things. We've built a system in our, in our country that's meant to help rehabilitate kids. In our state, we've made it a big priority to rehabilitate kids and put them back on the right track. So we should do whatever it takes. However many resources, however many steps, we should take them all. And with all that being said, I want to thank you all for joining us for today's show. Uh, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to write in. For more information about the podcast and the show notes from this episode, check out our show page at miyouthjustice.org forward slash the table. This show is written and produced by me, Hussein Hadri. Our theme music is Wasted Education by Blue Topaz. This show is the copyrighted work of the Michigan Center for Youth Justice. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll talk to you next month.